The following content is explicit. It's Friday, April 20th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I'm going to read you a headline. Justice Department watchdog probes Comey memos over classified information. The former FBI director said he considered the memos, which he gave to a friend who released to media personal documents. One other detail. The allegation here is that the memos, uh, even if they weren't classified at the time, contained information that the government may now have concluded is classified. That was Pete Williams of NBC. Now, did, did you hear that? that? That little detail weren't classified at the time? I played this game with myself. I, I wanted to imagine, let's say, hypothetically, I was the most partisan asshole in the world, that I just couldn't see through my lens, my thick lens, my tunnel vision, right? Let's say that. And let's say I heard what you just heard, that the memo was classified after the fact. Would I still say, if that were the case, I mean, if I were a dyed-in-the-blue, dyed Comey's-a-traitor, deep-state, Benghazi, hand-shot-first type of guy, even if I were that guy, would I look at retroactive classification and blame a guy for that? Could I do that? Maybe I would do that in the service of a greater truth. I don't know. It just seems really unfair to ding a guy for passing along classified information if the classification came after the fact. It's like once society judges that killing a cow is as bad as killing a person, we're all going to look terrible. But I just please beg our grandchildren, our future grandchildren, to understand what we were doing at the time. Yeah, I know. Somewhere the PETA people and Ezra Klein are going, no, we had the information today. Now that, all that stuff I told you about the uh, classification, that's some new Comey developments. And it is new that there is Comey news. Not that Comey's not in the news, but as long as he's been in the news, the complaint has been that he says nothing new. Here is the National Review's Editor's Roundtable podcast speaking as Michael Brendan Dougherty. The only news he broke in his book, you know, over the past week, it seems, is that actually he was thinking of the polling when he right. went and, you know, re-announced the opening of the uh, Clinton email investigation a week before the election. Now, Darity criticizes that, but I don't. But that was a ubiquitous complaint that Comey is not telling us anything new. But may I ask you, isn't that more a complaint about the complainer? Oh, I understand that our attention is valuable. Oh, I very much understand that. And I watched Stephanopoulos and I read the Stephanopoulos transcript and I listened to Babaro and I listened to and watched a bunch of The View. I do not think I'm going to do the full Remnick. Someone you could tell me some condensed Remnick if you must. I won't turn away. If the full Remnick is good, I will indulge. But right now I'm not planning on the full Remnick. But isn't another way of saying that Comey is saying nothing new, just saying, wow, Comey's been remarkably consistent. He wrote down notes from some shocking meetings with Donald Trump. Trump says loyalty, he says honesty, honest loyalty, says that every time, that's how it goes, every time, consistency. I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go. He says that all the time, not breaking any news. Comey consistently quoting Trump as having said that about Flynn. It was relayed in his testimony before the Senate. It was rendered on the page. He has said the same thing for every interview. He's consistent. His story is not changing. I know it doesn't make for revelatory news, but it seems more to Comey's credit than his discredit. 
Unless, retroactively, we come to regard consistency as inconsistency. It becomes classified as inconsistency, and then Comey would indeed be an inconsistent deep state traitor. Today on the show, in the spiel, I talk about a short squat building hard by the banks of the Snake River or some other river, and I interview Adam Davidson, who says this about the end times of the Trump presidency. I think sex is going to come up more and more and more. He will explain up next. From Batumi to Baku, if Donald Trump has an idea to build a building that a city doesn't need, Adam Davidson is there. He's reported extensively in The New Yorker about these two kind of bizarre proposals. And from this reporting, and also his whole history of reporting, he has made a declaration, an observation, that the recent seizure of documents belonging to Michael Cohen might just mark the beginning of the end. He's been here before in a number of different contexts, and I wanted to, well, he's been here on the just before, but he's been in that situation where we look back and maybe say, how did we not see this coming? So what Adam tried to do recently is write a piece notifying the world that this is the point where we should see the Trump empire crumbling. Hey, Adam, how are you? Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm good. So... In order to come to your conclusion that um, that the Cohen developments probably do mark the point where it all starts crumbling for Donald Trump, you look back to your time in Iraq, uh, where something similar happened. You look back to early reporting pre-financial crisis, where something similar happened. But what I want to ask you is, did you search your own personal history as a journalist for any examples of missed signals or any examples of false positives? I have no doubt I've had false positives and, and, and missed signals. I think I, w- I was talking about something different, about when certain things stop being predictions and become clear facts. Mm-hmm. I was in Iraq for most of the first year of the U.S. occupation there, and it was stunning how there was still a very vibrant discussion back in America about whether this occupation of Iraq was going well or going poorly. And I was on the ground, and it was going really poorly. That that wasn't like a, an opinion. That wasn't like a talking head thing. It was just clearly, clearly going very poorly. And a similar thing happened with the financial crisis, where once somebody like me (laughs) truly engages and understands the financial products at the core of the crisis, it's no longer really an opinion. It's just, oh, these things are disasters. These things will collapse in a chaotic way where large banks won't be able to even know how much money they're worth, and that will cause a crisis. Now, it's not a prediction. It's not saying, I know by September there's going to be a financial crisis, or I know by, you know, that by next March there's going to be a growing insurgency. It's simply an observation that things are disastrous. And and I guess the added observation that when things are truly disastrous, truly dramatic, they eventually seep out to public opinion. Mm-hmm. And before whatever it is, a week and a half ago, like many people, I thought 
there's a chance that the Mueller report will come out with real evidence of, of collusion with Russia. And there's also a chance it won't. You know, I'm of the opinion that there clearly was collusion on the campaign level. I think that's been fairly well established, but that um, Mueller could well find out that we can't really link Trump himself to this. And it'll be enough of a victory that Trump supporters and Fox News and Trump himself could declare victory. And basically, we would enter a new phase of the Trump presidency where he's post-crisis and is feeling, you know, more more uh, expansive in, in how he can impact the world. So what I was trying to get at is that once the Southern District of New York, the feds in New York, raid Michael Cohen's office, that is no longer possible. We are never going to see a post-crisis Trump presidency. The things I know and, and mm -hmm. many others do as well, about the way Trump conducted his business and the way Michael Cohen conducted their business is truly shocking, truly disturbing, potentially truly illegal. And we are now going to be hearing about that. And the important point is the Cohen investigation represents a second front. It's not only about Russian collusion. It's not only about Russia, and it's about stuff that is much closer to Trump's heart. So I just want to make this clear. In the two earlier crises, there was evidence that was not known to the lay public uh, that you were privy to. In one example, it was actually happening in Baghdad on the ground. And back in America, we thought things were going well. So you knew things that people didn't know. With the financial crisis, you did your research. There were people within the financial world who said, this is a disaster waiting to happen. You found evidence that people didn't know. The evidence that you have in this case is the evidence, all the stuff you put in your New Yorker stories about Georgia, about Azerbaijan, and your other reading and your other reporting about international deals? Is that the evidence you have or you're privy to that maybe the public isn't really realizing yet? I, I, I think there's a few different things all, all, all together that I was thinking about. So one is like actual evidence that either has come out and will come out. Then mm -hmm. there's something else, which is... It's a weird thing to talk about as a reporter, but there are a lot of really great investigative reporters who are chasing some very, very powerful stories about Trump that are, I think, orders of magnitude more upsetting than anything we currently know about him. And my sense is that there is going to be an accumulation of sort of incontrovertible evidence about Trump. And it's going to get closer to him, and it's going to become more troubling over time. And I think that that is going to peel away, not from his core support, of course not. But I think that there's enough Republicans in purple states that we could see a fundamental restructuring of the political calculus around Trump. So this observation, everything you're saying, stems from this raid on Cohen's office. Tim O'Brien, writing in Bloomberg, points out that Cohen is not the most important lawyer in many of these international deals within the Trump organization. He talks about Jason Greenblatt and Alan Weisselberg, who I think you've written about. I'm not sure that Tim O'Brien is contradicting you, but I just wanted to present that to you. Are 
you overstating the importance of Michael Cohen to the uh, centrality of Trump's international deals. So, and Tim is a, you know, he is the dean of, of Trump reporters and knows the Trump organization better than I do. And I don't disagree with him at all. He and I had a friendly talk about this. Definitely, there were other people in the Trump organization who were more central to the operation, who were higher up than Michael Cohen. The reason I think Michael Cohen is a uniquely important witness is precisely that he wasn't a lawyer. Uh, I mean, he's a lawyer, but he wasn't acting as a lawyer in the Trump organization. He was a deal maker. He was the guy meeting with these sketchy partners, you know, in the former Soviet Union and, and other places. So he... People like Jason Greenblatt, who was the general counsel of the Trump organization and is now next to Jared Kushner in charge of uh, Middle East peace in the White House. You know, Jason Greenblatt was a headquarters lawyer, a very important character. But my sense is that the, the, the details of these deals were fairly sanitized by the time he got his hands on it. Precisely because Jason Greenblatt is a decent lawyer, I think he... I assume he was more careful about staying away from potentially unethical, illegal behavior. Michael Cohen was really on the front lines and, and the international expansion, which is what I'm particularly interested in, of the Trump organization in the last decade into highly corrupt nations, former Soviet nations. That's really a Ivanka Trump, Don Jr., Mike Cohen operation. They are the ones leading it. They are the ones, and Michael Cohen especially, flying to the other countries, meeting with the other people. So, you know, Michael Cohen went to Georgia, went to Kazakhstan, um, dealt with the folks in Moscow, had close ties in Ukraine, had close ties with lots of oligarchs. So if I were going to pick one person who isn't named Trump to investigate, it would be Michael Cohen. From reading your stories, I got the sense that the Trump team had an argument about why they didn't violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act specifically. And you put this argument, you know, there's one part in one of your articles where it's an exact juxtaposition. You quote the Trump Organization lawyer who is saying, you know, we didn't violate foreign corrupt practices because we never owned this hotel deal. And you go right to a specialist, a law professor who says, no, that's just wrong. You can't do business deals in Azerbaijan assuming that you're immune from the FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. My question is, was there a lack of prosecution on this act simply because it's a headache to prosecute and Trump's a pretty low-level businessman until he becomes president, and now there just might be the willingness to prosecute? Or do you think they were lacking sufficient evidence to bring a charge on FCPA, and now this Cohen investigation might actually give them more evidence? So first of all, I think there is a broader issue, which is that the Department of Justice does not prosecute white collar crime nearly as much as it should. And and foreign corrupt practices, which is the US law that makes it illegal for an American business to bribe a foreign government official, it's barely prosecuted. And we specifically don't prosecute cases like this. It's very expensive to prosecute a case in the former Soviet Union and Azerbaijan, these are very corrupt nations. FBI agents don't have subpoena power in these nations. So it's it's extremely hard. You have to prove a whole bunch of things. But if you suddenly have documents 
that show everything, mm-hmm. including the most crucial thing, which is awareness. It's a totally different matter. So if documents show that Michael Cohen, not acting as a lawyer, but acting as a businessman, as a, as a deal maker, knowingly broke American law, knowingly worked with criminals, knowing that the money they were paying him came from crimes, knowingly participated in a scheme to bribe a foreign official, it becomes a fairly easy case to prosecute. These deals, and generally most you know, alleged financial crime, is not designed for this kind of scrutiny. And certainly, you know, the Trump deals were not designed for this level of scrutiny. They were designed for a much more casual level of scrutiny. So, um, you know, if Trump were still a sort of relatively minor figure in New York real estate, and I don't think he'd have ever been prosecuted for this stuff. It'd be very unlikely. But um, well, we have we have proof of that. That was the case before he ran for president. That was the case before <laughs> he ran for president. But he is now the president of the United States. And and he the other interesting thing is when you work with financial criminals, then financial criminals are the ones who have the evidence on you. And they find themselves in a position to blackmail you. So the people he worked with in Azerbaijan, that that company was then taken over, if the rumor is, or with good reason, by the president of Azerbaijan. The people he worked with in Georgia, he had been partners with a bank that was then taken over by a close ally of Putin's. And so, I mean, we don't know, maybe no crimes were committed. But what we do know is if, if they were committed, the documents are are in Michael Cohen's office and also in the offices of the partners overseas. And so that is a potential blackmailable issue. And then don't forget that, you know, Michael Cohen was also Trump's sort of fixer for the Stormy Daniels and, and other cases. So it's it's not necessarily all going to be financial fraud that that the investigators are going to look at. If this all comes to pass, can you see a scenario where uh, many associates of Trump, maybe very close associates, maybe people with the last name Trump are charged, but not the president himself? Absolutely. Ivanka Trump and Don Jr. were the other two key figures in these overseas deals. But well, let me ask you, let me interrupt and say, in the history, when these Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, when these charges are brought or similar charges, and the name of the organization is the Trump Organization, do they always try to charge the head of the organization, the titular or actual head of the organization, or they just go after the people who they have a paper trail of uh, making the deals? Well, this... This, again, gets to the frustrating way in which America prosecutes white-collar crime. What's most common is it's a civil penalty, and it's, you know, sort of the corporation paying a fine and no criminal charges. You know, it is very frustrating. If you're a low-level drug dealer who's part of a criminal operation and you're caught, you know, you either flip or you go to jail. If you're a high-level business executive and you're caught committing a much larger crime, then your company and your shareholders are fined and you don't have to declare guilt. So in the normal course of business, people like Donald Trump, Ivanka Trump, Don Jr., can, for the most part, operate in with impunity. It, it is a feature of our system. Now, I will say they were outliers. You know, one thing I always hear whenever I report these stories is, oh, all business does this. No, mm-hmm. they don't. 
the Trump Organization partnered with people who other businesses would not partner with. In fact, I think that was their business to partner with people who wouldn't get partners in other cases. And the Trump Organization took wild risks. I mean, just in the case of Azerbaijan, even though, as I've said, it's highly unlikely they'd be prosecuted, still, you should not do business with people who are known or likely to be money launderers for Iran's Revolutionary Guard, which very possibly are doing terror financing, doing weapons of mass destruction procurement. And the potential penalty, even if it's a civil penalty, is in the hundreds of millions of dollars. To do that, to make five million bucks, it just is bad business. It's bad risk assessment. It's it's just a dumb move to make. But that being said, I, I really do hope that when this is all over, however it's all over, we realize that there are huge long-term consequences to allowing business to be conducted unethically and terribly, um, illegally, without much fear of prosecution. Is there anything else we should know about why you're calling this the end stage of the Trump presidency? Anything we haven't gotten to? Um, I think sex is going to come up more and more and more. I think that there's a lot of evidence that sex with lots and lots of people mm-hmm. was a big part of Trump's personal life for a long, long time and part of his business life that being in a room with lots of other older men having sex with younger women was, was a part of cementing business ties. A fair n- amount of that has been published, but it, it hasn't, we haven't gotten the full picture yet, but it, it's pretty shabby. It's pretty gross. I know Jerry Falwell Jr. will go to his grave saying it's great, but I think a lot of other people will not. Yeah. So we started at Bonfire of the Vanities and we end at Eyes Wide Shut. Well, thanks for that. Yeah. Caligula. <laughs> Adam Davidson is a staff writer at The New Yorker, and we were talking about many of his articles. The latest is Michael Cohen and the end stage of the Trump presidency. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Mike. And now, the spiel. In this segment, I will insult a lot of my friends, a lot of people I respect, a lot of people I've read or listened to over the years, close, personal friends of mine. That I will do. They're great podcasters and journalists, but I do it out of love and I do it out of munificence, but also pure selfishness. Because I need the podcasts I listen to to each be about one and a half minutes shorter. If they were all one and a half minutes shorter, I'd have a little time to... Who am I fooling? Listen to another podcast. And and so where do we where do we get this one and a half minutes? We're not gonna stop doing commercials for mailboxes. I mean, that's our lifeblood, right? So I was listening to the latest Trump Inc. podcast by Ilya Meritz and Andrea Bernstein. Good stuff. Great stuff. Adam Davidson's on this week's. On the latest episode, they crawl up Michael Cohen's nostrils with a microscope and set their Geiger counter to 11. But speaking of pointless prose, Here is how the story starts. Queens, New York, a warehouse district just across the East River from Manhattan. Here I am, one-story brick building. This is where Michael Cohen, now the president's lawyer, practiced law for many, many years. 
kind of a dingy corner. As I said, this is an excellent podcast. I think the best version of this podcast. There are scenes and stories that you're not going to believe in this podcast. Michael Cohen's part in a fake accident scheme, and the Russians were behind it, and investigators named the scheme Boris, which stood for Big Organized Russian Insurance Scam. How excellent is that? But what's not excellent is dwelling on that dwelling, or any dwelling, He starts the report by just talking about a building. It's not a distinct building. It's not a notable building. I guess the idea is that the anonymity of the building is a contrast or maybe an irony to this fascinating Michael Cohen guy who once a long time ago worked in the building. And so we got to know what the building looks like on the outside. This happens all the time in these investigative podcasts. It's not good enough to tell me the evidence. The evidence is compelling. You've got to set the stage and knock on the door and engage in a kind of reverse Zillow, which is real estate denigration. I mean, talk about nondescript, yeah, right? right? This is... I don't even see any signs on here. That was like a piece of paper <laughs> taped to the window. Despite the lack of signage, we found what we were looking for. Hi, looking for the Pharaoh office. The Foreign Agent Registration Office. Thank you. It is not exactly one of D.C.'s great monuments. No. It's a tiny little ground floor office not far from the Capitol, but it's a lot more powerful than it looks. How impressive is a government registry office supposed to be? It is the Foreign Agent Registration Office. I think anonymity is quite appropriate. The Bureau of Land Rights Management is located, as any school child will tell you, in a hot pink Frank Gehry designed Mobius strip of a building with a beloved neon frog character gleaming from the roof, beckoning all those who would register land. We get it. It's a lame office building where they lamely do business. There is no need to draw attention to the fact that it's lame. Worse than lame, it might even be described as squat or earth-toned or, oh, this is the death knell, putty-colored. Pity the putty-colored. Or the weirdest, worst description of all, nondescript. Behind me is a nondescript two-story brick building that houses the control center for these rail lines and the brains of what will be Metra's positive train control system. There's nothing wrong with that brief tossed-off description, except the word is literally not a description. It makes me mad. How mad? Unadverbally mad. I get trying to communicate a sense of place, but when the place doesn't even register with the senses, what is the sense of placing us there? Again, these are all very good stories. The foreign agent registration story was a reveal, that's the podcast, a dive into another flavor of Trump kleptocracy. There was the Trump Hotel and a weird Malaysian businessman. A good story for you to hear. How good? The reporters are coming on the gist. It's a good story, but it commits this small but nearly ubiquitous sin of sharing so many details that do not matter to the great parts of the story. Yeah, setting a scene. Painting a picture. Okay, but Edward Hopper painted pictures. Andrew Wyeth painted pictures. Both those guys were pretty spare when they spared us the details of every bit of the house that you were walking into. I have an explanation for why this is happening. Now that podcasts and more and more radio are just taking more and more time, 
luxuriating in storytelling. They're using techniques that are borrowed from print, and they're also imbibing some of the excesses of print. It always drives me crazy when in a huge magazine profile, they linger on the shirt that the guy is wearing. Really, it's just a shirt. New York Times Magazine. John McPhee lives and has almost always lived in Princeton. I met him there in a large parking lot on the edge of campus next to a lacrosse field where he stood waiting next to his blue minivan. He wore an L.L. Bean button-down shirt with khaki pants and New Balance sneakers. So clothes. What you're telling me is the guy was wearing some clothes. In The New Yorker, they can't do a profile without mentioning the person's shirt. This is by Anna Russell. John DeVore, Woolies editor-in-chief and a New York Post alum, was wearing a pink shirt, Nikes, and steel-rimmed glasses. Also, from Anna Russell, Klaus, Klaas, Oldenburg, the artist, leaned back in a rolling office chair and considered some sculptures made of canvas shopping bags fashioned into mouse ears. He wore a pink shirt and round glasses. On a hunch, I began to investigate if every New Yorker mention of pink shirts was written by Anna Russell. My investigation brought me to a low-slung building hard by a mill where a man in a collared shirt with a mustard stain and rimless glasses saying this sentence you are now hearing found this. He looked out a pane glass window to the four-story structure next door. It was a nondescript office building. How nondescript? It was actually invisible. But no, it turns out there are other pink shirts in New Yorker stories that aren't written by Anna Russell, Khalifa Sana, quote, the man known as Decius was tall and fit, a youthful middle-aged professional dressed in a well-tailored gray suit and a pink shirt. John Lee Anderson, Correa, an amiable man of 63, was bald and corpulent and dressed in a gray suit, a pink shirt and a burgundy tie. Tad Friend, the writer was garden party ready, impressed khakis, a pink shirt with rolled up sleeves and a striped magenta tie with a blazer draped over his shoulders. Wait, was it a gray blazer? Because what I'm learning is that gray suit jackets go with pink shirts, at least in text they do. And the thing about describing a guy's shirt as a way to understand the guy is tomorrow he's going to be wearing a different shirt. Get me rewrite. Every one of those writers I quoted, actually, I don't know Anna Russell. She seems good. But Tad Friend and Khalifa Sana and John Lee Anderson, they are all great writers. They are all better writers than I am. I hope one day they profile me. I will be the guy wearing a button-down, nondescript, putty-colored building. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname. He is writing a nondescript thesaurus, and now he's done. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, is patching her ceiling with putty. Building colored putty. Yes, Mary Wilson, or is that her nom de plume? Or merely her nom de script? Steve Lichtai, an amiable man of 45, who is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is wearing a pink suit and a gray shirt, just to distinguish himself from all those guys in New Yorker profiles. The gist. Nondescript needs to go on the list alongside monosyllabic and onomatopoeic as words that are just lying to us. Umperu depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. I just want you to know the bridges I burn are nondescript bridges. (laughs)